Once again, give your attention to the reading of God's word from Mark's gospel. Hear now the word of our God. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. For he answered them, you, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among, among them all. And they were, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Thus far God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Jesus, our rock and our near kinsman. Amen. You may be seated. It is a privilege to be here and and to be preaching this evening. This is my first Presbyterian meeting uh, with Tyndale Presbytery as a member. I'm glad to be here. I'm trying to decide whether being asked to preach was a privilege or a punishment for being the new guy. I don't know exactly. Uh, It's a test by fire, maybe, but uh, I am glad. I count it as a privilege anyway. I did believe, I thought I might be teaching, since this was my first time, that I might be speaking mainly to the pastors and elders, uh, and so there will be some emphasis in the sermon on those uh, on those offices within the church, but this word of God is for the, all of the people of God. So please hear and give attention to the preaching of God's word. Authority tends to be a dirty word in our culture. Uh, the inclination of humans is to resist authority because we simply don't like anyone telling us what we can and cannot do, and couple this with the fact that authority is abused At so many levels, in the home, the government, and yes, even the church, people tend to bristle when we speak of exercising authority. Authorities in many institutions have abused their authorities, using it to consume people for themselves. Fathers abuse their wives and children. Government officials manipulate and consume the governed. Priests, pastors, and other church authorities have used their authorities for unspeakable sins against those they are called to shepherd. Authority is viewed at best with suspicion, and at worst, it is out out and out rejected. None of this is new. The world in which Jesus is living and Mark is relating for us has the same issues. On the one hand, you have the official authorities such as Herod Antipas. 
He is the, he is the puppet ruler of Rome at this time in, in and around Judea and Galilee. And then, on the other hand, you have the more moral authorities in the land, the Pharisees. They held some positions of authority, but as a group, as a sect, they were not official authorities. They had some basic, they, and they had some basic view of governance, but they had, they had different aims, Herod and the Pharisees. In the end, both authorities, official and largely unofficial, were on the same page and they were doing the same thing. They were devouring the people that God put under their care. In the midst of this, Mark relates a story to us of two occasions in which Jesus feeds 5,000 and 4,000 men, respectively, plus women and children each time. In these events, he contrasts the way of his authority in the kingdom over against Herod and the Pharisees and the way that they exercise authority. Unlike the present shepherds in Israel who devour God's people, Jesus has come as Israel's true shepherd to provide for his people through the 12 apostles. Now, let me take just a minute to explain the bigger picture in Mark with these feedings, and then we'll come back and deal with the details of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if we, if we were to read ahead in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21, we would see that Jesus brings up both of these feedings in a boat ride with the disciples in the context of instructing his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. The disciples don't understand what he's saying, which is pretty common throughout Mark. They think he's fussing at them for not bringing bread on this boat ride across the sea after the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is baffled by their lack of understanding and and fusses at them for it. He he, He isn't at all concerned about their not bringing bread. At this point, he points them back to the feedings of the 5,000 and then the 4,000 and the remnants of, of bread left over respectively. There were 12 baskets and then seven baskets. Now, what we need to understand here is that these two feedings are tied together and they express a contrast between what Jesus is doing and what the Pharisees and Herod are doing. The feeding of the 5,000 follows the incident of Herod and the death of John the baptizer, which just so happened to be at a feast. The feeding of the 4,000 follows and is followed by confrontation with the Pharisees over their traditions that nullify God's commandments and their seeking of a sign. The leaven of Herod and the Pharisees, though expressed differently, is basically the same. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, his apostles. Herod and the Pharisees used their authority to devour God's people instead of providing for them. And in doing so, they are bad shepherds. Herod eats his people at feasts. He brings the head of John the baptizer out on a platter. The Pharisees refuse to include in their feast the people that actually need the feast, something that is recorded earlier when they criticize Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they also pervert God's law concerning the Sabbath so that they would rather have people starve than to quote-unquote work on the Sabbath, a confrontation that Jesus had in a grain field just earlier than this. Jesus doesn't want that kind of leaven, that kind of, that view of authority growing up and maturing in his disciples. He wants his good kingdom leaven growing in them. And if they allow the leaven of heresy, Herod and the Pharisees in, it will eventually overtake everything that they do. They will become better they, they will become no better than them. 
They will just switch powers with Rome and act like Rome and act like Herod and act like the Pharisees. And Jesus' kingdom is totally different. What Jesus shows them in these feedings is what it means to be a good shepherd or a good king. He's embodying the way of the kingdom and he is proclaiming and in this teaching and in this teaching them how to be good shepherds. This is indeed shepherd training in this passage, among other things. The shepherd training begins with the feeding of the 5,000 in the passage we just heard. King Herod has just had his feast on John the Baptist. Now, King Jesus will have his. Now, we are invited to note the contrast. In the first contrast, we see in, in, in the great shepherd that is to be emulated in all shepherds is the shepherd's compassion for the sheep. Jesus and the twelve have become very popular. Consequently, they can't find rest, and Jesus commands the twelve to come away by themselves into a wilderness place for a little rest, a desolate place. Already in the opening statement, Jesus is teaching something about shepherding, and that is that they have limitations that require rest. Having to take rest it's not, is not evil. It's a part of being a creature. You can't go, and it, though it's ex, extolled as a virtue in our society to go 24-7, 365, it is not a virtue in Jesus' kingdom. This is not what God did in creation, and it's not what he expects of those he made in his image. He is a giver of rest, and Jesus provides rest for those he calls to be his shepherds. Men, and I want to address pastors and elders here, even though some of you would never admit it, some of you are afraid to rest. You're afraid that if you rest, other people are going to call you lazy. You don't work, you're in the ministry. You, or, 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 or maybe you think that the whole world's just going to fall apart if you take a day off. Excuse my bluntness, but you're just not that important. The world doesn't hang on you. And God has called you to rest. He's called you in his love to take rest. You need rest. You need time to be refreshed. Jesus doesn't drive his under-shepherds. We do that to ourselves many times, afraid that the church is going to fall apart if we take time to rest, if we refuse that call, if we refuse to answer that email, that somehow, some way, the church is just going to disintegrate. It's not. Busyness has become the great American virtue, and I still fight that defensive. I'm not, I'm not talking as one who's overcome all of these things. I'm telling you, I still fight that defensiveness to justify myself in taking time off each each week, but I need it and you need it. We need it. We need the time to rest. Jesus recognized this and he gave, he was, he was going to give rest. Now, I'm going to qualify this in just a moment, but he was going to give rest to himself and to his, to his, uh, his apostles. Part of shepherding your churches is teaching them that it is not only permissible, but it is desirable to take rest. And Jesus is taking his disciples to rest and so they get in a boat and they cross the sea to get to the wilderness to take that rest that jesus commanded them to take and the fact that this is a wilderness or desolate place is obviously important mark emphasizes it by mentioning it three times in this passage in verses 31 32 and 35 the fact that they go through the water to arrive in the wilderness 
should make us think back to Jesus' baptism and then even further back to the Exodus. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they crossed the sea and went into the wilderness where God tested them. Jesus, after he crossed through the waters of baptism, was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. This wilderness is the place where the voice of John the baptizer is crying out and preparing the way of the Lord at the beginning of Mark. And that way leads Jesus right through the wilderness and his confrontation with Satan. But now... They're coming to a desolate place to find rest because Jesus has already been there. He has conquered Satan, and the wilderness can now be a place where his disciples can find rest. Now, this doesn't mean that they're going to be free from all testing. Jesus will be putting his disciples to the test in the wilderness, not for their destruction like Satan intended for the Son of Man, but to mold them into good shepherds. He's going to put them to the test in the wilderness, and he's going to do it with bread, just like God did, just like he did in the wilderness back after the Exodus. He will test them in the wilderness, just like he did Israel. And they will learn that they do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They will see that the one who led them into the wilderness will provide for them there, just as he did for his people years ago. Jesus is not only providing for them at this present time with bread and fish, he is providing a foundation for them and for us to work from even today. When his shepherds must lead his people into and through the wilderness, we can be assured that Jesus will provide. And there still are many wilderness times that we must endure and times of testing. Now, while they're trying to go into the wilderness for rest, they can't get away from the people, as we'll see When there are genuine needs to be met, and this qualifies the resting, when there are genuine needs to be met, we must be flexible enough with our rest time that we can be disturbed so as to provide rest for others. There is a sacrifice. There is a burden in this ministry that Jesus gives us, and sometimes it does mean giving up that which he has graciously given to us for the sake of others. While they are in the boat, people are on land running to Jesus' destination. Most translations will say that they were on foot. Mark uses an idiomatic expression that can be understood as on foot, but it really speaks about being on the land. And this is important in this whole scene in the story. I bring that out because the contrast is set up between the crowds being on the land and Jesus and the twelve being on the sea. Earlier, Jesus taught from the sea to the people on the land. See, anointed with the Spirit in his baptism, Jesus is this Spirit-like, is, is Spirit-like in that he hovers over the face of the deep like the Spirit of God in Genesis 1, calling the land from the waters and making it fruitful with plants and animals. These people are running ahead of Jesus and the disciples to beat them to their destination so that they can meet them there. And when they arrive and moor the boat, Jesus sees the great crowd and he has compassion on them. Now, the word translated compassion is a very physical word. It's a feeling word, not something a lot of Reformed folks are very good at, by the way. <laughs> Emotions. It speaks about what you feel in your gut. It's like saying that Jesus was all torn up inside or that his heart went out to them, as we might say. Jesus feels for them so much that it hurts. Sometimes we might have the tendency to look at something like this and simply say, You know, that was the human side of Jesus because we know that God has, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
no parts or passions. We might want to take that as God being the great unmoved mover in the heavens. But that's not what it means in the confession, certainly not justified by Scripture. What we need to remember is that everything Jesus said, did, and felt is the revelation of his Father. He is Yahweh in the flesh, the perfect revelation of God. This compassion is not something that's strange to God that Jesus took on in his humanity. We, cannot, we can't think of our God as the unmoved mover, this grand stoic being who feels nothing but coldly calculates decision and hands out judgments without emotion. As images of God, where do you think we get our emotions? They have to be reflective of something in God himself. Jesus' compassion is the revelation of the Father just as much as anything else in Jesus' life. And our God has compassion for us. He is moved when we are in need. He hurts when we hurt. He rejoices in our joys. He feels with us and for us. He cares when we're not being cared for. This is our God, and we see him in Christ Jesus, the perfect revelation of the Father. Why does Jesus have compassion on this great crowd? He says, because they are his sheep with no shepherd. In the history of God's people, God's shepherd, uh, God's shepherd for his people has been the king. Jesus is saying that the people are kingless. They have no king. But Herod is a king. Herod is presented as a king in the last story. But Herod is a devourer of God's people. This leaves the people kingless or shepherdless. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, this is not a good situation. The people need a shepherd to lead them. This has been a concern throughout Scripture. Many times throughout Scripture, God is concerned about and condemns bad shepherds of his people. Herod is a bad shepherd. Herod is self-consumed, only using people to advance his own causes and comforts. He's more concerned about impressing those in power and advancing with them than he is shepherding the people who have been committed into his hand. But Jesus is the good shepherd king who will provide for those under his care and who will, who will create under shepherds who will follow his lead, who will be in his image. So what does he do when he sees the king, when he sees them kingless, when he sees them shepherdless? What is the expression of his, past, his compassion for them? He begins to teach them. As we will see, teaching is not the extent of his shepherding, but it is obviously a major aspect of it. He's moved with compassion, and he begins to teach them. He begins to instruct them. Teaching them is leading. It is shepherding them. It is giving instruction as to the proper way to view God, the world, and how we're to live in the world before God. It is one means by which we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It moves us and changes the way we think. The pastor teacher, whether one person or two in Ephesians 4, is, is a gift to the church. Teaching is vital to seeing the church grow into maturity, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Pastoral compassion is expressed in giving oneself to learning so as to teach in order that God's people might be led in the right way, that you might be saying the right things, that you might be reflecting what God actually thinks and says and reveals. Jesus is exemplifying in himself what he's expecting of the shepherds that he will be appointing. You have compassion and you teach. You give yourself to the right 
dividing of the word God. We see in, in this story some of the indispensable characteristics of God's shepherds. They must have compassion for people. They must love and be willing to be involved in the lives of people. They must be also ready to teach, leading them through the spoken word to the place that God would have them. Now, this is not all that Jesus does for us and not all that he requires of his shepherds. If his shepherds are going to be faithful, they must not only have compassion and teach, they must also give the people Jesus food. And we see this in verses 35 to 44. Jesus has been teaching a while and the disciples become understandably concerned about the people eating. They know that they don't have provision to feed them, so they call for Jesus literally to release the people. Jesus will have to let them go. They are willing slaves to Jesus, hanging on all of his teaching. But now it's late. The Methodists are already at Piccadilly. I'm sorry, that's a Baptist joke. Anyway, obviously, Jesus has been teaching for a long time. You see, that's what good shepherds do. They teach for a long time. They have long sermons. It's right there in the scripture. That's what, that's what I'm talking about. That's it. Contrary to what we heard yesterday. I don't want to disregard what Jeff said. But uh, they teach for a long time, and Jesus has taught them until they are extremely hungry, till they're, fa- till they're famished, just like you experience every Sunday, right? But it's time to release them to go into the surrounding fields and villages to buy something to eat. And this eating, or lack thereof, has become a theme. The disciples haven't been able to eat, verse 31. The people here need to eat, in verse 36. Everybody in this scene is hungry. I want you to know what Jesus doesn't say to the disciples. He doesn't say, don't you know that there are more important things than food? Don't you know that you should be concerned about spiritual things? If you were really spiritual, you would let me just go on all night and just starve. The fact is that God created us hungry As hungry creatures in the beginning, hunger and dependence upon food are not evil. This is not something, this is not some bodily craving from which we need to escape. It is there before the fall into sin. We are hungry not because we're sinners, but because we're creatures. Creatures who are always dependent upon our creator. Hunger keeps us remembering this. Thanksgiving for what he provides keeps us remembering that he is the one who sustains our lives. So letting your people go in a reasonable amount of time so that they can eat lunch or supper is not something that is sub-spiritual. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples but tells them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples at this point are floored. It would take at least 200 denarii to feed this crowd, and that's about two-thirds of a year's wages for the common laborer. This would be one expensive meal. They don't have that. Jesus knows that they don't have enough to feed the crowd when he tells them that, yet he commands them to do so. They're being tested in the wilderness. He's training them to be shepherds. He's setting them up to learn what it means to shepherd the people of God. One lesson that they are learning right here is that they are not sufficient in themselves to provide for the people. We heard that this morning, didn't we, pastors and elders? They are under shepherds and not the chief shepherd Are they appointed to shepherd the people of God? Yes. Are they responsible to do so? Yes. Are they able to do it on their own? Absolutely not. 
Part of the responsibility is for these shepherds to realize their own hunger and therefore their own dependence and need. The provision that they need for themselves and the people given into their hands will come only from the great shepherd. Jesus makes the twelve aware of what they don't have. And then he asks them what they do have. How many loaves or literally how many breads do you have? Go and see. Jesus sends them out to find, to find what's there. What's been left? What is it, what's out in this creation here? God has given something to them that they, they, that they come and present to Jesus to be used. It may not be much, but it's just what is needed for this particular hour. The disciples come back and report that they have five loaves and two fish. Now, Jesus told them to go out and look for bread, but they bring back fish as well. Bread can be used as a general meaning for food, and so they have understood the command to be, go find the food, go find food for the people. But bread and fish have a special significance to what's going on here. First, we are given specific numbers, which must mean that the numbers themselves are important. I always want to be careful finding the significance in numbers, but the significance is there in Scripture. Here we have five plus two, which is seven, seven items from the creation. The number seven is associated with the entirety of creation, all of creation days. These five loaves and two fish seem to represent the entirety of creation. The bread comes from the land. It is made from grain that sprouts from the land. And the fish obviously come from the sea. Land and sea, the entirety of creation, are represented somehow in this meal. Jesus is taking from the entire creation, transforming it, and will feed people from all the nations with this transformed, fruitful, and multiplied creation. These nations will be fed, are also, these nations that will be fed are also represented in the bread and fish. You see, Israel is bread, and this is clear from earlier scripture in which the 12 tribes are represented in the tabernacle and the temple on the table of bread, the bread of the presence or showbread. There were 12 loaves placed on the table each week, looked over by the seven-eyed lamp on the other side of the tabernacle or temple. Israel is associated also with land in scripture. They are land people. Bread is a product of the land and is therefore associated with Israel. The Gentiles, however, are associated with the sea. There are many images to which we could point, but Isaiah makes the parallel clear in Isaiah 60, verse 5. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The fish that come from the sea represent the Gentiles. The disciples bring Jesus both bread and fish, Jews and Gentiles. And see, Jesus has already dealt with some Gentiles when he delivered the demoniac. And he will do so again just a little later as he makes a big deal out of healing the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, a dog. While five loaves of bread and two fish aren't much with which to work, Jesus is going to do something with it. You see, the creation Adam left hasn't been as fruitful as God intended it from the beginning. It is provided up to an extent until now, but it is not enough for the life to teem throughout the entire creation as God intended. The world is hungry. The world is dying. The world is starving. But the world is hostile to sinful man not yielding its fruits in abundance. They plow, but they get thorns and thistles. They get minimal fruit. Jesus has come proclaiming a kingdom that will grow and encompass the world. 
This can't happen in the present condition. How will it come about? Jesus will transform the creation, land and sea, Jew and Gentile, and the world will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with abundance. The feeding scene itself is interesting on a number of fronts. First, Jesus has the disciples arrange the people in literally banqueting groups. The words as well as the way Mark uses them here are unusual. Jesus has them arranged, reclined as if they are at tables. The disciples go about arranging them in these groups, and the people are literally in rows, arranged by hundreds and fifties. It's an orderly arrangement on this grass out in the middle of the desert or in the middle of this desolate place. The people are reclined as if around tables at a banquet, but they also look like an army arranged out in the field. And when you add to this that there were 5,000 men, the military imagery is made even stronger. Why are only the men counted in these feedings? Because only men 20 years of age and older are counted in the census of Israel because they are the ones who go to war. The census was about setting God's army apart. The number five has these military connotations. When God delivered his people from Egypt, he described them as his armies. And here's what, we, here's what is said in Exodus 12, 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of Yahweh went out of the land of Egypt. And when they left Egypt, they went out literally, according to Exodus 13, 18, five in a rank. It's translated sometimes equipped for battle or in orderly ranks or in martial array. Here you have Jesus having led 5,000 men into the wilderness and arranging them in hundreds and fifties in rows. They have passed through the sea. They're in a desolate place. He's arranging them as armies. And like the armies of Yahweh that came out of Egypt, these armies don't look like much. Maybe like many of our churches. Maybe like our denomination. But they're just the kind of armies that Yahweh will use. And so he has all of his armies all arranged. Then the shepherd has them recline on the green grass. Images of Psalm 23 emerge here. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus is Yahweh, David's son, but also David's shepherd. He is the true shepherd of God's people. He is the one who leads, provides, feeds, and protects. He is forming up this new Israel with the 12 disciples being the foundation and creating this new army for the kingdom whose central life will be around his table. Yahweh has provided this table right in the presence of their enemies. They are still in the Galilean region where Herod is still the ruler. With Jesus bringing in this kingdom, you would think that there would be a battle going on, and there is. But this battle is not like Herod would fight a battle. This battle will be fought by Yahweh the way he determines. And central to that battle is the feast right there in the territory of the enemy where he gives his people rest in the presence of their enemies. When Jesus begins the feeding proper, the parallels of his actions here with what he does when he institutes the supper are too striking to be coincidental. Yes, there are some differences in what's eaten. Fish is involved here. But Jesus takes, you notice, the bread. says a blessing. He gives thanks and praises the Father. He breaks it and he distributes it to his disciples. This is what he does in the upper room in Mark 14, 22. This feast anticipates the feast that is to come. 
It tells us what's going on in one aspect of the Lord's Supper. This is a kingdom feast where all the nations come and join. Jew and Gentile are taken up in Christ and they are transformed. They become fruitful and multiply, become food for the world. The the actions of Jesus in giving the broken loaves to the disciples is telling. Think about this. Remember, he commanded them earlier, you give them something to eat. They couldn't do it. Now Jesus is taking what they have brought him. He's transforming it. He's multiplying it. And then does he give it out from his own hand to everybody else? He gives it back to his disciples for them to distribute. He says, now you've got something to give them. He takes it. He multiplies it. He gives it to his servant. And he's providing what he commands. This will be the ministry of the twelve and the church as a whole. We take what we take Jesus, what we have. We take him our broken lives. We take him the little bit that's been produced in our dominion taking. We take all that we have and we take it to Jesus. We bring it to the table. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it in the hand of his minister, he gives it back and he multiplies it. This is just what he does. He takes it. He blesses it. He multiplies it. He gives us back and he expects us to serve others with it. It is not just for our own consumption. And Jesus doesn't just give you a little trickle. Well, you got enough now. You have all that you need. He gives an abundance. Once everyone has had his fill. The 12 collect 12 baskets of broken pieces. They have leftovers. Jesus will highlight this later in chapter 8. He says, how many, how many baskets did we have left over after I fed 5,000? They said 12. They, they knew. <laughs> they had 12. And that, those 12 baskets are significant. We, we've, we've seen 12 before. It's generally associated with Israel, which is made up of 12 tribes. And Jesus calls 12 disciples who will be a renewed Israel and the foundation and the foundation for a new Jerusalem that he is building according to Revelation 21, 14. 12 is associated with the disciples in Mark, and I believe it is here as well. Jesus commissioned them to be shepherds. He sent them out on a mission earlier. In fact, this is this scene follows that that whole mission trip that they took as well. He told them to feed the people. And now each of the 12 has a basket Provided by the great shepherd. The twelve will have a continuing ministry to shepherd the people of God. They must feed the people. Bringing people to Jesus' kingdom feast. This ministry remains for the church as a whole. And especially is carried out by Jesus' under shepherds. In this ministry, we can become a little overwhelmed. and We can become a lot overwhelmed. Because the task is so vast. That we have so little. And as we look at this story of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, understanding how it is still teaching us about what he does for us so that we can have a complete mission that he gave us, we must remember that Jesus is able to do much with very little. We're not much. It doesn't matter how big your church is. No matter how big your church is, you're not much. We're not much. We don't have much to offer. We know this about ourselves as well as our churches and even our denomination. In the world's eyes, we just, we just don't look like much. 
a ragtag group of people sometimes from some eyes. But Jesus has always been able to do a whole lot with very little. God creates all things from nothing so that we know, we know he, can, he can take a little bit and make a whole bunch. All that is required of us shepherds is that we be faithful in carrying out the mission Jesus gave us. And that's simply bring him what he's given us, ask him to bless it, receive it back, and then give it to the people. That's it. That's faithfulness. His provision doesn't always look the way we expect. The armies look like common men, women, and children, and the food looks sparse. However, the great shepherd is feeding the world through what we're doing. You trust him and you stay faithful to your calling. Staying faithful to your calling means that you must always acknowledge and live in light of the fact that the authority Jesus gives you as a pastor or elder in the church is for the purpose of serving his people and the world. In this pericope, we see the characteristics of kingdom authority for those appointed as shepherds, compassion, teaching, and feeding. We must be truly caring about the needs of the sheep Jesus has put in our care And we must be moved to instruct them, not only from the pulpit, but also in simply living our lives together in times of leisurely fellowship or intense counseling. Our teaching must always be with the aim of arranging the Lord's armies around his table and feeding them with the food that Jesus provides, and that is his own body and blood. Word and sacraments provided, uh, administered by Jesus, provided by and administered by Jesus through you, through you provides the life that Jesus desires for his church. Again, you simply stay faithful to this calling. and You won't be a failure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all the privilege of serving you in whatever capacity that you have given to us. We thank you especially for those who lead your congregations, whether they be pastors or ruling elders. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would grant them the strength to do what you have called them to do. Give them everything that they need. Bless it. Give it back. Give it to them and help them to minister to your people. Help us to stay faithful to you in these things. And know that at that last day, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.